oh, there's a podcast on my calendar. Okay. And I opened it up and I was like, oh, well, of all the topics for me to just roll in sans preparation with, this is the one. So I feel fine, actually. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. I saw this this episode as sort of as sort of a reckoning for you English majors. Is is this figure not deified to an extent? Is this figure, is this iconic historical figure always not some sort of proverbial elephant in a room? Something you always have to refer to? Something that it always goes back to? The Rosetta Stone? I remember I was in high school, AP English Literature, and my AP teacher told me everything, well, told the class, but I'm going to pretend like it was just me, told me that everything was either Shakespeare or the Bible, and or the epic of Gilgamesh, saying, am I right, Mary Graham? You are right, Jeff, because here's the problem about saying everything is either Shakespeare or the Bible. What about all the Bible that's in Shakespeare? Right. Ooh. It's just, I, I understand, and it's not that I necessarily disagree with what he was getting us to look at, which is that Shakespeare is a huge frame of reference, but even Shakespeare is built off of so many frames of reference. Like Romeo and Juliet is Pyramus and Thisbe. Like there are so many. Here's... <laughs> Which is a play that he um, actually even... He spoofs Pyramus and Thisbe. Yes. I, in Midsummer Night's Dream... Side note, uh, I would go see Shakespeare in the Park at Griffith Park back home in Los Angeles every year. And I love the way that that company did Midsummer Night's Dream because instead of putting an actual wall as the wall, they had one of the like silly, goofy actors pretend to be the wall. So while the characters are like talking through the wall, he's like, just smiling and winking at the camera at the crowd not the camera and it just it made it so much funnier and it was just a great moment so yeah Shakespeare knows what he's doing which is that he's not doing anything original And that mic drop is where I'm going to put the theme song. <laughs> we have to squeeze this in. I did not introduce this podcast, which is called A Little Too Quiet. We, d- we did just start talking. This is uh, the Ferndale Library's podcast. It's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. You are going to be hearing a discussion about Shakespeare. Could we call it something other than a discussion? Uh, analysis, uh, an exorcism. An autopsy. Two literature students stand on soapboxes and start shaking fist at clouds. Shakespeare's uh, death day slash question mark birthday is coming up. In fact, it's on the day that you're hearing this and you're about to listen to this wonderful episode with Mary Graham. Hi. And Roddy. Hello. And I'm Jeff and I really don't contribute anything to this episode, but I hope you're not true. I hope you're entertained. Here we go. So my sort of thesis about it all is that Shakespeare is just some guy, but in the words of the chorus of the Broadway musical Something Rotten, the man really knows how to write a bitch in play. That is a direct quotation, so I am going to leave the swear in. The Tempest, am I right? And and like that's that's the thing. Is like I I wrote my undergrad thesis on Shakespeare and adaptation, specifically adaptation in young adult literature. 
but I'm obsessed with Shakespeare's la- quote unquote lack of originality mm-hmm. and his work as an adapter just in general. So like, yeah, the man never had an original thought in his life and I literally don't care. That actually makes him much more fascinating to me. And the reason that I... <laughs> One of the many reasons I didn't go into academia is that as I was writing this thesis, I would just sit there and, you know, because you have to you have to think about your audience and you have to answer the question, well, why does why should anyone care about what I'm saying? And I would just sit there and go, they're good plays, Brent. Like, I simply think it is enjoyable theater. And that's why I've been obsessed with his plays since the fifth grade. And like, yes, Jeff, like you are right. The man gets deified in a way that I'm like, this is. I find it rather obnoxious, but that doesn't mean they're not good plays. They are excellent plays. They are so excellent, in fact, that people just don't think that he wrote them. I, that is one of my least favorite conspiracy That is theories. one of my least favorite conspiracy theories, too, because it simply reeks of classism. It is so classist. And it's just like anti-Stratfordians, that is what the conspiracy theorists are called. DNI, get out, get out of my house. Wait, yes. so so the isn't the conspiracy that maybe Marlowe did it, maybe Bacon did it. Marlowe well, would have been Marlo writing from beyond the grave, that. which is an impressive <laughs> trick that I would maybe, like him to teach me. Maybe he stole from Marlowe. Wait, so No, Kate Marlowe okay, here's the thing about Christopher Marlowe. I keep calling him Kate like I knew him personally. I mean, I call Shakespeare Will all the time, and I think at oh, this I point Willie. I I call I him have, Bill. I have earned that right. And I do call Kit Marlowe Kit because like I studied Dr. Faustus in school. And after that experience, Dr. Faustus is a really good play. After that experience, he and I are on first name terms. Also, when you've seen that portrait of him looking like a rock star as many times as I have, you want to look that man in the face and tell me that everyone was calling him Christopher day to day. The Jim Morrison of the 16th century. It's like my inner joke about uh, Shakespeare and Marlowe, which is that if they were two characters in a teen movie, Marlowe would be the really creepy, like weird emo kid who, you know, wears all black and just doesn't really necessarily like anyone. And then Shakespeare would be everyone's best friend. Marlo is like Oren from Parks and Recreation saying to Ben Wyatt, do you know how you're going to die? And Ben Wyatt going, wait, are you asking me or telling me? Like, (laughs) like, that's just so when people are like, oh, Marlo did it. Who's the other one that they said did it? Was it Bacon? Am I? I They say Bacon and they say uh, the Earl of Oxford. Right. Someone even wrote. Uh, or there was like this movie or yeah, something. Yeah, it's a bad movie. Yeah. Where Shakespeare essentially does what I think James Patterson does, which is have someone in his basement writing plays for him. We might have to take that out the podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, keep it in. Keep <laughs> no, it in. No, this is... With the the, the, the people like, know that this is a James Patterson critical oh, uh, publication. But, Absolutely. Yeah, and this episode so is turning into exactly what I thought it would when I put Roddy and Mary Graham together and asked him to talk about Shakespeare. I am literally the gif in the comment section that's eating popcorn right now. Just keep going. <laughs> it's very classist it's very because people are like well no one as poor as him could be as as well traveled enough to know this much about the world and it's like that's actually based off of a very like classically white view of europe and how people what people look like in europe and what was going on in europe also tell me you don't understand the elizabethan economic system exactly because his family i mean like his father was a glover he was an artisan he was an alderman of stratford yes there was a whole embarrassing thing about how he wouldn't show his face at church because he was in a lot of debt like but it's just like people are like oh uh a a glover's son from stratford couldn't have written all this well he did go to grammar school 
He drilled a lot of Latin, and then he moved to London. And, like, London is... (laughs) Do you know what goes on there? Everything. Do you know who comes through London? Everyone. Yes. Like, the people that he talks about, the people that he writes about, if he lived in London, could have encountered anyone from any of these backgrounds, and then some. So it's just... It is 100% classism. This is a Shakespeare wrote his own plays. And he did what so many writers do, which is pull inspiration from classic stories, which Which, were just as classic to him as they are to us. Which was a huge, that was more interesting to early modern people. Being like, oh, we got this guy's take on, so like his source material for Julius Caesar or Antony and Cleopatra, that's Plutarch's lives. And everyone's like, oh, sick. Will has gone and dramatized some Plutarch. That's a good day at the theater. Because if you've never read Plutarch, let me tell you, he could use a little, him and Tacitus, oh my God, they could use a lot of dramatization (laughs) if you've ever read them. Is it- First of all, this is the podcast where you tune in and you hear people say, if you've never read Plutarch, and I'm <laughs> loving it. I am loving it. Who does all of the histories? He's got a well, separate source for all the English histories. Is it Monmouth? Because he's sorry, got, because so he does. I'm with three that my brain is just Herodotus and Thucydides. So if it's for the English, I don't know. <laughs> and that's, that's okay, because you did all of the, like hardcore classic classic stuff at school and I didn't and so I like because like Lear Macbeth that's all from yeah yes Jeff nothing oh okay and then of course like all of the histories like the the classic English history plays the Henry's the Richards's it's mostly Henry's and Richards's Mm -hmm. yes there might be a John in there there is a King John no one likes to talk about it (laughs) No one likes to talk about it. I have a uh, I have a poster in my home that is a flowchart entitled "Which Shakespeare Play Should You See?" I guess the entry for John is "Is excommunication exciting? Boy, is it ever!" Then you should go see King John. Um, oh, if it's it's uh, do you want to take a nap? If the answer is yes, it's Henry the Eighth. So, <laughs> so anyway, so yeah, so Shakespeare is using all of these very well known. Mm-hmm. sources or is reworking tales that maybe people know maybe people don't like i'm thinking of some of the comedies like nobody's ever heard of the source material he's working with for much ado about nothing mm-hmm. or as you like it mm-hmm. anymore mm-hmm. but again like the thing that i love about shakespeare is that theater at the time was not highbrow and i don't say this to mean that it's all fart jokes or it's all sex jokes and it has no meaning. Like popular culture has literary value. Mm-hmm. And I started to say, I mean, it's like it's like the deep literary value of a teen comedy, like 10 Things I Hate About You, but that is circular because that's based on Taming of the Shrew. But <laughs> but you know, it is like there's there's literary value to the great pop culture hits of our time. And so the thing that really endears me to Shakespeare's work is that, yeah, he is this, you know, artisan merchant son from Stratford-upon-Avon mm-hmm. who was like, acting sounds like a good time. Mm-hmm. Is it particularly reputable? It is not. I'm going to move to London anyway, and I'm going to write really good plays that people really enjoy, that my friends right. are going to think are important enough to collect in a single volume after I'm dead. Because he had an epiphany. The play's the thing. He said it. 
And he was like, I got to go do it. I was wondering. It's the thing. I was wondering when it would start. And We're 12 thing. minutes in, dear listener. Another thing you have to remember is that, you know, people back then, they used to they used to bite their thumb. And it was as bad as giving the finger. But then you had to ask whether or not the thumb was being bitten at you. It's a whole thing. It was a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Roddy is the law on our side. So listen. <laughs> if this I is throw a pen at Jeff. I wanted to do something fun. I wanted to do something. Oh, that's true. It is Jeff's birthday. And it is. so he gets a pass. That's a whole other angle here is that we're going to premiere this podcast roughly on Shakespeare's birthday. Well. Slash death day. Thank you. Here's the thing. This is where I become a pedantic early modernist. We don't know when Shakespeare's birthday is. We know what day Shakespeare was baptized. He right. was baptized April 26th at Trinity Church, Stratford-upon-Avon. Uh, and in those days, <laughs> I recently attended the baptism of a three-year-old over Easter, which is... An excellent time, because I don't know if you've met three-year-olds, they can already sort of talk, and boy, they can definitely move. Oh, yeah. In early modern England, they were like, dunk that baby as soon as it's okay enough for it to leave the house, because we are concerned. Uh Aha. And so they dunked Shakespeare... Uh, three-ish probably like two to three days i mean it was it was almost immediate so it's a guess that he was born on the 23rd but he definitely died on the 23rd and that's why people are like wouldn't it be cool sure it's also the feast of saint george who is the patron saint of england so people are like wouldn't it be extra cool Mm -hmm. if he was born and died on the same day Mm -hmm. and also on the feast of english patron saint But anyway, April 23rd, it is a holiday in my home. April 23rd, so I'm going to call it Shakespeare's birthday. So it's my birthday today, but we're premiering this. You're listening to this, folks, when it was possibly his birthday, but likely his death. We can, we can, we can. I mean, I like the story as much as anyone. We'll say it, we'll say it for dramatic effect. Yes. He would love this story. He would love the story. He would love his story. Um, Symmetry. Speaking of Shakespeare's adaptation, I think that's why he's possibly the exception to my adaptation rule, because he's already adapting something. So adapting him just makes sense at the end of the day, because as Mary Graham said, he's making he's taking these ancient texts, ancient stories, et cetera, et cetera, and, you know, making them accessible to his time period. And the people in the audience are going to understand exactly what he's trying to communicate. They're going to get all the inside jokes. They're going to have a good time or a terrible time if we're talking about Titus Andronicus. But that is Okay, but here's... So is Titus Andronicus a terrible time? It is. It is. However, I can't look away. It is. So... It's a riveting play. That same company I just mentioned before also did an ad like a production of that, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, I have to go see this play because reading it is not enough. Um, that is a play that definitely needs to be seen. You need to see the body and count. I, it was harrowing. Yeah, and I have to admit, I got a little grumpy because there's one part the actress who played. Um, I have the entire Lavinia. There is also Tamara. Yeah. Well, the daughter so. Lavinia. Yes, she did just one of the best stage performances I've ever seen in my life. But um, I remember I was watching this with my best friend and, you know, people, I don't know if it was nervous laughter. I don't know if they just didn't know what was going on, but people started laughing and I was just like, absolutely not on my watch. I didn't say anything. For listeners who are not familiar with Titus Andronicus. Titus Andronicus is the John Wick of Shakespeare plays. It is the John Wick of Shakespeare plays. They shouldn't have killed his son. Um, So... (laughs) 
that's an intense play. Please tell it folks is, about yeah, it. Yeah, so Titus Andronicus is one of Shakespeare's early plays. It's a, a Roman play. It's a tragedy. It is a very classic revenge play, which Marlowe loved doing, and Shakespeare does not that many of them. Titus Andronicus is kind of the most classic one, um, and it features... A very high body count. Um, it features people being baked into pies and fed to their mother. As one does. It's priest. Try a little priest. And most famously, it features there's an offstage rape scene and the woman who is raped and her rapists are later the ones who are baked into the pies but they cut out her tongue and they cut off her hands so that she can't say what has happened to her and they think so that she won't be able to write what has happened to her and eventually she does manage it but there's I've actually never seen a full production of it but Julie Taymor has a film version and I have seen because I studied Titus Andronicus for a class on race in the renaissance is that with Anthony Hopkins I don't know. Okay. Because we didn't watch any of his scenes. We only watched the scene where Lavinia tries to tell, I think, her uncle what's happened. And this Julie Taymor film, I mean, she opens her mouth and just blood everywhere. It is harrowing, but also, like like I said, I couldn't look away because it was horrifically but beautifully done in this film. Mm-hmm. So a good production of Titus Andronicus is distressing, but is also a work of art. Yes. So... Uh- I'm glad that the production that I saw did such a good job of doing it because I don't think I'm ever going to try and No, I don't think I would ever... If if I got the chance to see a production of Titus, I would be I would be vetting that director before I went. We're not exactly in Midsummer Night's Dream territory, am I right? Well, here's the other thing: my Shakespeare a professor in college uh, also pointed out. She's like, it's funny that we give Midsummer Night's Dream to children first on account of all of the the non-consensual drug use and bestiality jokes o-m-g yes sixth grade yeah sixth grade yeah my school put it on as a play yeah it's because people say fairies people are like oh there's fairies right yeah there's a guy with the ass on its uh, as a head like yeah there's no deal let's just put it out there it's fine Um, wait a minute also dating myself the movie came out while I was in elementary school. Oh, with Kevin Klein. With Kevin Klein yep. and Michelle Pfeiffer. Yep, as Tatia, uh, Titania. And who Calista played... Flockhart? Yeah, Calista Flockhart. Is Christian Bale in there? Maybe, but who played Puck? Um, Stanley Tucci. That's right. Thank you. Yeah. Tucci. Oh, <laughs> I did watch that version. I say recently, but recently can be anything within the past decade, I found. It can. But I did enjoy it. Um, <laughs> so... My, I'll watch anything yeah. with Stanley Tucci. Tucci, come on the podcast. That's that's legit. Um, we know you just wrote a book, Stanley. Come talk to us Stanley, about it. Stanley, come on the podcast. My favorite. So one of the only, only good things that happened in 2020 is that after the theaters had to shut down in a haunting rendition of the 400-year-old song, You Can Catch Plague at the Theater, a lot of British theaters, which already do professionally filmed and broadcast productions, their shows, started broadcasting them on YouTube um, as a way to solicit donations. So the Globe would do a different play every week, the National Theater, and the National... um, broadcast their partner production of A Midsummer Night's Dream that they did with Bridge Theatre in London. And it is my favorite production of Midsummer. It 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 gives Titania's lines to Oberon, so it flips that, um, which is interesting. Uh, Gwendolyn Christie plays Titania. She's incredible. And it's the funniest rude mechanicals I've ever seen. Nice. It's 
everyone in it knows how to ad lib just the right amount. Mm-hmm. It's immersive, so the audience is standing on like all sides, and the actors move through the audience. And I mean, Midsummer has always been a favorite of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, but when at where they put the interval break. <laughs> They have Bottom and Oberon dancing to Love on Top. Mm-hmm. And it's, Mary Graham, what, what song do you most associate with a Shakespeare play? Could it be any of the original settings of his work? Could it be perhaps Mumford & Sons' album, Sigh No More? No, it is Beyonce's Love on Top. Wow. Yes. It's fantastic. And I saw so many good plays that I otherwise probably wouldn't have seen just because they're not that often produced um, from all of these broadcasts. Like the Globe broadcast uh, The Winter's Tale, which is – and Two Noble Kinsmen. You know who does Two Noble Kinsmen? No one. And people love to say, like, oh, The Tempest is Shakespeare's last play. It's not. Because you know what Elizabethans and Jacobians loved in addition to adaptation? Collaboration. And Shakespeare (laughs) co-wrote Two Noble Kinsmen with, I actually don't remember who, off the top of my head. Wow. But it's a delightful play. It's based on Chaucer's The Knight's Tale. So then you also would have had, you know, like an English-speaking audience who was familiar with the Canterbury Tales written in English going to the theater like 100, 200-ish years, 200-ish, yeah, years after uh, the Canterbury Tales has been written. And they watch Two Nibble Kinsmen and they go, that's The Knight's Tale. We know that one. This is pretty good. And it is. The Globe production of it is fantastic. It's available on their website. And I was watching it, never seen it before, hadn't actually read The Knight's Tale, so I had no idea except for the little pre-show talk that one of their dramaturgs did. I had flying completely blind. And I was like, why is everyone so determined to make The Tempest his last play? This is a great play. This is a a great play to go out on. This is something to be proud of. Just because he wrote it with someone else, everyone's like, la, 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 la. I don't know. That's my justice for more than just the greatest hits plug, even though I love the greatest hits, but the man wrote like 38 plays. That's a lot of plays. Indeed, indeed. And let's name the top five right now. For us personally? <laughs> no. Oh. Let, let's listen. I'm just, Roddy. Roddy wasn't I ready for that. I such panic, actually. I have the completed works right here because it's on my bookshelf. Excellent. And I, as Mary was saying, he wrote 38 plays. All I hear in my ear is, Jeff, go now pick five. And like my brain. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, did you not just hear me say there's 38 of them? Okay, should we do what we think the five most well-known are? That is exactly what I'm about to do. Okay. That is exactly, and okay. you can check me, and I'm not putting them in order. Uh-huh. Okay. Go. Hamlet. Uh-huh. Have you heard of it? I've heard of it, yes. Romeo and Juliet. Yep. Macbeth. Yep. I'm going to say Othello. I would say that, too. And then is it Lear? I would say Lear. And those so are the those five. are the five. And if it wasn't Lear, Lear, I would say Julius Caesar. Okay. Yes. I would say his tragedies are like it's his romantic comedies that i feel like get looked over thank more. you it's like and then there's histories romantic comedies and, and then like, weird wow. plays are you like saying, wait, weird are... plays at the bottom like winter's tale and two noble kids are you yeah. saying that people don't make enough ado about the comedies i will let that pass because i am saying that okay that is a, exactly not enough ado not enough ado um, less ado and 
And even you then, even within the comedies, we would welcome Much Ado. We always so, welcome Much Ado so in this household. You have ever played The Sims, but with all of the adoos, it just sounds like <laughs> Jeff is speaking Simlish at this point. More ado. <laughs> just cannot. <laughs> yes. His comedies deserve so much more love. And even within the comedies, there's a hierarchy. So there's Midsummer Night's Dream, because everyone knows that one. And if you do read a comedy in school, it's probably that one. I'd say as you like it, because it has the most famous role for a woman in Mm. Shakespeare. Twelve. Twelfth Night, Much Ado About Nothing. Those are kind of the four big comedies, I think. I personally am a Love's Labor's Lost stan. Nice. Um, because Elizabethan frat boys and the women who are smarter than them mm-hmm. is always my pitch for that. Always. Oh, and is it true? Hey. Yeah, do, do we have to talk about true? <laughs> Unless it's in the context of, of ten, 10 things. things. I'm not interested. Did Shakespeare really write Taming of the Shrew? Yes. If Frankie Valley had not yet written that song that he dances to? You're just to? too good to Thank be you. true. Yeah, hasn't it written that song yet? How can... you. It's honestly interesting that you bring that up because people did not discover Taming of the Shrew until after that song came out. And then, you know, in the 90s, they were, I'm lying. So like, I'm just lying. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. I'm like, oh, that one was definitely was, in the first folio. That no one discovered until that song came but out. But Shrew is like, also crazy. a very early play. Mm-hmm. And so people like to... Here's the, here's the other thing about academics who be studying Shakespeare is some of them actually I'm not even sure I should make that blatant statement about academics some people who enjoy Shakespeare try to glean things about the man from the work and so they're like was he a misogynist when he was young because he wrote true and then he became less of one because then he was able to write like Rosalind and Beatrice and Cleopatra and I'm like that's not an interesting question and you shouldn't be looking to his body of work to solve it Mm -hmm. I think um I don't enjoy Taming of the Shrew. I don't think it's funny. I'm glad it exists because it gave us 10 things I hate about you. So now we never need to watch Taming of the Shrew again. <laughs> um, but. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Please continue. So, oh, so Love's Labor's Lost is taking that fifth slot. Love's La- Well, like, in terms of is it well known? No. <laughs> like, Love's Labor's Lost is solidly halfway down mm-hmm. the comedies. Um, I'm trying to think of other. What are the other main ones? Oh, probably Merchant of Venice, which isn't a comedy, but is technically a comedy. That's another one we probably shouldn't do anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Roddy and I are making the same face. Right. And the face makes my voice sound like that. And again, trying to glean from the man. Exactly. I, I mean, unfortunately, and I hate to use this argument, but like in terms of like timeliness and also trends of the time. Yeah. Um, especially in Shakespeare's early work, the way that I... I kind of came to this conclusion um, after some very surface level research of my own, which is that while Shakespeare is doing something new, quotation marks for the listeners, he is still following certain trends, especially in the way that he writes. So that is why people might hearken his work to other contemporaries of his time to say, oh, this person wrote that. But the way I just see it is that, especially with his early works, while he's trying to establish his own voice and style, he is still very much, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just like I said, sticking to the trends of the time in terms of language, in terms of themes and things that are quote unquote popular at the time. Like, do I have the full historical 
research background to say that that is the case 100% no but that is the thing that makes the most sense to me especially as we watch him develop as he goes on because he goes from following trends to setting the trends dingity ding ding grows in popularity so that's the best way that I can make sense of what's going on with some of his early works I completely agree with that and because some of the plays we've mentioned uh, Titus Andronicus, Taming the Shrew, uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona, which no one ever talks about, um, Comedy of Errors, and one of the other, they're all flying out of my head now. Those all fall into, you know, Titus Andronicus is a revenge play. Um, Merchant of Venice is extremely anti-Semitic. Um, in the same way that, like, Marlowe was right, I think it was Marlowe who did Jew of Malta, which is also a very bloody very anti-semitic play like none of this is to excuse this is saying these were trends in elizabethan theater at the time and roddy is absolutely correct like taming of the shrews the wife beating comedy Mm -hmm. like these were all these were all uh comedy of errors twins they were and that's also they're subgenres yeah and comedy of errors is also based on a roman farce and people do be loving a roman farce um and so yeah you absolutely see and that's that's why I don't think it's an accident that quote unquote that those big five tragedies that we just named mm-hmm. Romeo and Juliet's the earliest. Mm. Everything else Lear is towards the end. Mm-hmm. Othello's towards the end. Macbeth. Those are all later career mm-hmm. works. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am just, I find it all so fascinating. Mm-hmm. I do too. And Lear is probably so if we're taking Othello, because if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you have you know that Othello is kind of like my baby. It's like I wrote my thesis on it. So if I'm taking Othello entirely out of the equation for me, Lear is actually my favorite. Um, it was a, also a contender for my senior thesis that I decided to play. go with Othello. Um, Lear is so so good. One of it, uh, Succession fans. Listen up. Succession fans, listen up. I've never even seen Succession, but and I know, know this is true. You know. No, because no, about it. I know nothing about it, but I have osmosed via the internet that there are three children and an old man. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, there it is. Um, yeah, right. and I, I do not know Succession, but I do know Brian Cox, and I do love him as an actor. Sure. And, um, yeah. So, and you know what? He needs to do King Lear now. He does need to do well, and it's it's interesting. I mean, we can we can talk about this. There's there's for actors something of a progression of the great roles you play. Everyone wants to play Hamlet when they're young and Lear when they're old. And mm-hmm. I wrote one of my favorite papers in undergrad about King Lear. Um, it was about King Lear and the end of the world. Uh, so like the apocalypse, etc. You could you could study Lear forever and never hit the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. Um, in a similar way that you can with Hamlet, but like everybody knows that. Mm-hmm. Um, Lear is, I think, his bleakest mm-hmm. tragedy, which is saying a lot because they're all brutal in their way. Um, I highly, highly recommend Tessa Grattan's novel, The Queens of Innis Lear, which mm-hmm. is a retelling of the Lear story. It's a doorstopper of a book. Um, and it is so richly done and so understandably develops all three of the sisters Mm -hmm. as well as Edmund kind of the literal evil bastard of the play but who was a fascinating fascinating character Mm -hmm. um so yeah the queens of Innislear highly recommend 
I'm actually thinking I may have to go reread it now. Excellent. Um, which is going to be an undertaking because it's a long one. But I I would recommend Akira Kurosawa's Ran uh, yes. adaptation of Lear. So. And if you like graphic novels, Lear, um, actually what Lear is based off of, and I looked it up and it is the Mon Moth history. I didn't uh, disappoint you, Dr. Chess. Uh, yeah, so Lear, in terms of the legendary Lear, which is spelled L-E-I-R, pops up in Once in Future. <laughs> and that's oh, all nice. I'm going to say. So, turned into yeah. a Lear appreciation podcast, rightly so, though. I well, mean, we... That the man crazy. really knows how to write a bitch and play. Like that's right. You it's know, so good. It's so good. I and you know, it just, it just, it hurts so bad. At, it's no, it hurts so good at the end. It does. It just continues to fall apart because like, Lear is one of the tragedies, or possibly the tragedy that up until the very end you think might actually be okay. Mm. You mm-hmm. sort of think Cordelia's armies, France's armies might take the day and it might be fine and then i mean much because romeo and juliet's a comedy until halfway through and then you're like okay also they told us right at the beginning that this wasn't gonna end well othello you're watching a whole play of iago (laughs) gaslight gatekeep girl boss um revenge question mark he doesn't even know what he wants exactly iago changes his story every time he talks to because um, I like it most, and this can be told in different ways. So when Iago breaks the fourth wall, you can actually play it as if he's just talking to himself. But the more popular and the way that I like it the most is that the audience is in on it the whole time. And Iago is literally just misleading the audience the whole time. It's like, oh, he passed me up for a promotion. Oh, he slept with my wife. Oh, he did this. Oh, I'm doing it for this reason. He doesn't need a reason. He just wants to cause problems. All he knows how to do is eat hot chip and lie. Yes. You were going somewhere with bleakness, though. Yes. Bleakness. Yes. Lear. Lear. So the thing is, the the point of tragedy is catharsis. This is, and like Roddy, jump in at any time because you're the one who's done the classical theater. Um, is (laughs) Roddy was already like so bad it feels good. Well, literally though, I mean the 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 idea of watching a tragedy is that you are supposed to experience some sort of relieving expulsion of feelings, and that that ultimately leaves you know makes you leave the theater going like, okay, I'm actually not extremely depressed by what I just saw. I feel alive. I feel of. alive. Yeah. And I feel that way when I watch Hamlet, for right. sure, in part because, like, there's so much going on there, mm-hmm. and there's so many different ways you can do it. I am really, really fond of Andrew Scott Hamlet mm-hmm. from 2017 with the National Theater. If you can find mm-hmm. the National's recording of that, it is my favorite one. Speaking and of feeling alive, you walk out of that place saying, well, to be, obviously. I choose to be. Not the other one. I, don't, I made my mind up. Catharsis. To be. All right. So I do go back to Hamlet and feeling. I'm sorry about all the ado. No, it's okay. It's okay. I have hot takes or perhaps I've never actually seen Julius Caesar, but as as Roddy and I have discussed, we are both noted Ides of March celebrators. Mm-hmm. So I would probably walk out of there being like, if they stabbed him, you know, oh, oh no, the fall of the Roman Republic or whatever. But I also famously don't care about Rome, so I'm like, they stabbed him, and we got to hear, you know, the Mark Anthony funeral speech. Speaking of which. 
Wait, slight you consider hint. Julius Caesar a tragedy? I just lumped it in with the history. That's the thing. Well, it's like, is it a Roman play? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I thought it was a history. Um, and I could be, I could be wrong about mm-hmm. that. I could be. I assume that there are just bros out there who are like, ah, oh, and then they killed Caesar in the fall of the Roman Republic. I don't. Mm-hmm. Shakespeare picked up his cool and said, "Let me take a stab at this." <laughs> There is catharsis in tragedy. There is is catharsis in tragedy. My brief side note is that there is a TikTok out there of a a man from the American South. I don't want to insult him or his people by guessing which subregion and guessing wrong. Um, But it's him in his car doing Mark Antony's Friends Romans Countrymen. Oh, I love I am not, Roddy, I will send you this video. I am not kidding. That is Shakespeare the way it was meant to be done. He's got a baseball cap on. He's got reflective aviator sunglasses. And it is, I could go to a funeral for family in South Carolina and hear that speech. Amazing. The way, the way that he repeats, but Brutus is an honorable man, mm-hmm. is, is the, the exact level of knowing passive aggression. Mm-hmm. It just... Oh my gosh, it just, it gives me shivers at one point. There's the strategic taking off of the reflective aviators and it's poetry. It's pure poetry. Which harkens back to Shakespeare being perfect for adaptation. Yes. Because there's, there, so I don't want to give too much credit to that because we have also talked about the problem with how Shakespeare is taught. Um, yep. We did that in our litigating literature episode, which is, you know, my biggest frustration is that Shakespeare should not be read. He should be watched or listened to um, or, you know, any sort of visual media that is not just reading words on a page. And so when you take Shakespeare and produce that visual media, that audio media you get to actually like really get to the heart of what's going on which is what makes that tiktok such an excellent adaptation of that one moment in shakespeare because in the hands of the right actor right director etc we can do something really really magical even with the language as it is as it is written exactly because like forms it because so. like I look at that and I think, well, that's not even an adaptation. That's just a man doing the speech and and actually doing it in an accent that is linguistically closer to Shakespeare's accent would have been than yes. any received pronunciation. Yes, Jeff. There's a lot about the quote unquote British accent and how it actually came to be, which is that um, this is not a linguistics podcast, but listeners, the British accent that you think you know is not the British accent of old. It's um, it's it's somewhat Roddy. Could it be the classism? Are you telling me? Again, could, actually, it is in fact quite literally the classism, which is probably exactly what you know, because the British accent as we know it was developed, if I'm not mistaken, amongst the more elite aristocratic classes in order to delineate themselves from the quote unquote pores. And then that caught on as the general accent. So what I'm hearing is that possibly Kevin Costner's accent in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves no. was, no. A- was <laughs> no. accurate. It's no. possible no. that that no, was it's not. accurate. No, no listen. it's not. And no. another thing, no. but I love this idea of not reading Shakespeare. Oh yeah. I always only get it when I see it really. And in my mind, I was thinking of like a a comparison of like the Beatles exist 
and you can see them live, but also buy their records. But that dance... The same is true of Taylor Swift. Right. Or Beyonce. But imagine the Beatles arrive, but the only way is to really see them live. And that's it. People aren't walking around with multiple copies of Shakespeare plays. And here's the thing. Yeah. Yes and no. That damn Gutenberg and his printing press. All right. Yeah, that damn Gutenberg and his printing press is it. So, so... Shakespeare, yes, for for most of his career, yeah, that's a completely performed visual medium. And also, the playhouse is not expensive. Mm-hmm. That's oh, that's the, uh, two hours. The groundlings, the peanut gallery, the pe- They don't. Well, I, I sure the groundlings, <laughs> the groundlings. Um, and uh, and so it's it's not an expensive day out. Um, and there are some copies of the plays that get immediately very popular like his first smash hit play is one of the henry sixes um there's three parts to henry the sixth is it five that's the one branagh did no but it's henry the it's henry the sixth oh there's six of no there's three henry the sixth (laughs) there's henry the sixth part one two and three who's on first jeff listen (laughs) listen Start, listen, episode one, two, and three came out after episode four, five, and six. No. You have. My goodness. And then they made a solo side story. All right. We're, we're back on track. <laughs> Listener, if you're still with us. Um, and so when Shakespeare would write a popular play, sometimes it would circulate in what's called quarto. And that um, refers to how small the book is because it's how many times you have to fold the piece of of paper so a quarto is uh folded uh four times and you gotta you you bind it up and then you gotta cut the pages an octavo is smaller because you gotta fold it eight times yep i'm picturing Uh, a uh sorry go ahead no it's fine so it will sometimes circulate in quarto form which is basically a bootleg copy like especially with something like what's known as the bad quarto which is Hamlet, um, is that sometimes you'll get quartos that are based on like what's called the fair copy for the Playhouse script. So that's what the prompter is going to be using in rehearsals. But uh, but sometimes you get basically some guy's memory. And the only person who should be bootlegging things by memory is Mozart, mm-hmm. uh, which he famously did with the Allegri Miserere, which was only supposed to be performed in the Sistine Chapel. Um, and Mozart heard it once and was like, okay, I think I got it. And he wrote it down. So... <laughs> Amadeus is a statistical outlier and should not have been counted. And uh, and so you get some books in quarto form or some plays in quarto form. Um, but then a lot of them we only have in the folio, which Shakespeare's <laughs> friends put together. Roddy, you're going to have to check me on that. I want to say it's 1623. Um, no. Hold on. I'm consulting the oracle. Actually, you are completely right. It was 1623. Uh, Dr. Wow. Chess, I continue to not disappoint you. 400 years <laughs> to the day. No, I was in a Shakespeare class on one of the, oh, in 2016, which was the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. And the Folger Shakespeare Library, which has many copies of the first folio, mm-hmm. was sending them all around the country. And Detroit beat out Ann Arbor as the Michigan city that got it. So it was on display. Take that, U of M. So it was on display <laughs> at the Detroit Institute of Arts. I went to Wayne State. My whole Shakespeare class marched down the street uh, and got to go see it, uh, which was fantastic. And so our study that semester was guided by the first folio. And we studied some plays that exist in multiple versions, like King Lear. We studied some plays that only exist in the first folio. And without Shakespeare's friends' 
you know, putting this whole thing together from fair copies that they still had from their Playhouse days, it'd be gone. There's a lot of stuff that is just simply not extant because theater is ephemeral. And luckily this guy had some good friends who thought this man knows how to write a play. Mm -hmm. And if we, if we write them down and use that thing that gosh darn Gutenberg Mm -hmm. invented hundreds of years after China was like, well, the printing, yes, yes, the printing press, we've all seen it, but the Europeans had not. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Who who knows? I want to throw some hot takes on the table and then just let the two of you fight. All these plays are about hubris. False. 95% of these plays are about hubris. Closer to true. <laughs> it's not, who would be the exception? Well, well, Midsummer, but like, the, when we're talking about the tragedies, it's all hubris, baby. Actually. Or greed. No, I'm going down the list. So Othello, 100% for me. King Lear, yes. Yes. Macbeth, yeah. Um, Romeo Hamlet, and Juliet, no. Romeo and Juliet, not there. Not there. Hu- no, you're right, though. Who else is tragic? <laughs> <laughs> what was my what was my what was my other my my other hot take? A lot of plot points just revolve around bad communication. Do you want there to be a play or not, Jeff? <laughs> I, like, okay, here's the thing. I used to when I was a judgmental youth think to myself, I understand that it's a plot device, but how can these people not recognize a single person if they're in like a poorly lit room or if they have a scarf over their face? And then a pandemic hit and I still wear a mask all the time in public um, and I have no idea who anyone is. Mm-hmm. Jeff, I barely know what the lower half of your face looks like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, So, sorry, Mr. Shakespeare, that was valid of you. All right, all right. <laughs> it's like the Clark Kent sunglasses. I mean, uh, glasses. Yeah, change. I would have no idea like, who that man is. Could they not recognize him? And it's just like, huh? Well, you know. Well, Superman doesn't wear glasses, Roddy. So it's obvious. <sighs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It. And what else? What was your next hot take? No, those are my two big ones: hubris and those bad communication. Ha! Jokes on you. No fighting here. <laughs> That's good. All right. Harmony. We both see and perceive the truth. Um, about Shakespeare. <laughs> about Shakespeare. I am really upset because ever since Jeff made the um, Henry and Star Wars reference, I keep thinking of like the there's a lot the of Henrys. Come original on, original trilogy in terms of like what each Henry. So of course the first one would be just it was Star Wars. It would be like Henry the Sixth, and then like who's striking back in the second part would it be oh, the Dauphin it's been a million years so did I read Henry 6 2 or 3 in school I don't remember now like the thing that actually makes me mad Jeff is that you are right he wrote Henry the 6th first and then went back in time to do 4 and 5 and then he tossed Richards's in there later mm-hmm I hate that that maps on to a Star War. Maps on extremely well to a Star War, in fact. And I read... Basking my vindication over here. Basking. (laughs) Vindicated. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, Josh. Happy birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Once again, the happiest of birthdays to you. Well, this guy either loves or hates me because... 
I don't, I'm contributing some to this podcast, but I keep throwing both of you off. I'm so sorry. Keep going. Oh, it's fine. I'm just thinking like in terms of, so we were saying very early on, like our first introductions to Shakespeare, mm-hmm. right? So was yours the sixth grade play? Technically yeah. it is that. You, okay. you, I think everyone is aware of, I'm going to say the two big ones, vaguely aware of Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Because it's osmosis. You know about Romeo and Juliet and you know about to be or not to be. Even as a third grader, mm-hmm. you've probably encountered it. But okay. yes, I would say sixth grade when I get to Taming of the Shrew. Or not Taming of the Shrew. Yeah, I think Nights. I picked up like a toy. Well, for me, it was six years old with um, Othello, actually. My mom let me. My mom, she does great things. Interesting choices. I know she's going to listen to this and be like, you hey, talked about Lincoln. Mother's Day, but, two weeks uh, away. Um, yeah, so it was a fellow and then much ado about nothing, both when I was in like kindergarten, first grade. And so, and I got to watch them, which sort of set the tone for me forever. Um, but I do remember being very young and finding like around Halloween time, like a toy skull and like doing the whole, alas, poor Yori. <laughs> Cause I was a weird kid. Um, but yeah. <laughs> so I probably saw the Kevin Klein Midsummer Night Stream either slightly before or around the same time I read it, which I was reading it in fifth grade and I probably saw it in fourth or fifth because my parents were like, Shakespeare's important, theater's important. We lived near the Hillbury, so they took me to see all the Shakespeare that was running at the Hillbury. Um, Rupert Everett. Oh, plays um, Oberon, right? And... And then somewhere around sixth grade, I watched the Branagh Thompson Much Do About Nothing. Um, and my my parents were very, they were like, you know, read the synopsis before you see the play if you want to have kind of the broad scaffolding. But they also were very encouraging about like, you don't have to read it beforehand. Like, go see it first. Right. Um, and then uh, I was a child who enjoyed being right about things. And I knew, first of all, I just like liked the language of Shakespeare. I thought it sounded pretty, but I also knew it was culturally important. And I knew that he got misquoted a lot. So I was like, well, I will simply read it and learn all of the right things. Um <laughs> So that when people do this sort of skull and say, you know, oh, alas, poor Yorick, I, I knew him well. That's not what he says. He says, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him Horatio, a fellow of infinite jest. And seventh grade Mary Graham was like, I'm going to be on top of the world with this knowledge. Because <laughs> then you get into that iambic pentameter. Iambic pentameter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then I just like... I was just like, I like hanging out here. I like hanging out in these words. They're very rich. They reward a lot of repeat study. They reward, you know, repeat viewings of the same play, either the same production or different productions. I watched that Andrew Scott Hamlet and come away with something different every time. Recently watched the Patrick Stewart Macbeth, which takes place in kind of this Stalinist, you know, vaguely Russia. Um that is one of the best kind kind of political kind of political readings of Macbeth Mm -hmm. and he's just really good I mean it's Patrick Stewart he's really good um 
And I just find it deeply satisfying when I see a good production of something. The Royal Shakespeare Company did a production of Love's Labor's Lost set in the Edwardian era right on the cusp of World War One. Mm-hmm. Because Love's Labor's Lost, another thing I love about it is it doesn't end with marriages because the boys are like, marry us. And the girls are like, we have to go back to France. Her father's died. There's like a political crisis. We, why would we marry you? You've you've been so immature this entire play. Nobody's got time for you that. You don't really know what love is. Right. So call us in a year. Like you have homework. Mm-hmm. Go do better and call us in a year. And I have always loved that. And this production from the Royal Shakespeare Company ends with the boys marching off to World War One. And Wow. Yeah, and so you sit there going, Oh, yeah, and as they leave, saying you don't know what love is, they spend the next six months listening to Hathaway's "What Is Love" to try to figure it out, and then they say, um, "So Jeff, you took that I, moment. It was a nice moment. I did take that moment, and you took it. And I also, well, I the only reason I'm coming in here to <laughs> is that we're going to run out of time soon, uh, so we need some last takes. And yes. the only thing I have to add to the table is that uh, Mary Graham said the Branagh Thompson. Much to do about nothing. I would uh, amend that to uh, the Branagh Thompson Reeves. Much to do about nothing. So. Uh, yes, uh, my brain immediately inserted uh, a, another um, flash. There. That's fair. It's just people tend to refer to Kenneth Branagh films as like, oh, the Branagh, this or that. And I'm like, in this case, Emma Thompson was in that film and she shall be remembered on equal footing. Um, and honestly, she is the best part of that movie. She is the best part of that movie. She's so good. It would fall flat without her. And then she goes and directs Sense and Sensibility later? Yes, and stars in it. No, Ang Lee directed. Ang Lee directed. But she stars in it. She helps write it. That's right. Yeah. So what I want to know as we wrap up is I want to know favorite comedy, favorite history, favorite tragedy. If you have a favorite romance problem play, toss it out there. Oh, man. Death first. (laughs) So is Richard III a history, technically? So that's my favorite history. Okay. I am a sucker for Macbeth. Fair. I really do love it. It's hard to deny. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah, welcome to pain. It's hard to choose a favorite comedy. That's Mm -hmm. the hardest one Mm -hmm. for me. But I would probably say, I would probably say, I'd probably just go with Midsummer Nights. But I I remember spending a lot of time, as was mentioned on a previous podcast, in my senior year, focusing on Twelfth Night. Fair. Uh, It's a good play. Well, good. Then I'm going to slide that in as my my pick. Okay. I have a bias towards Twelfth Night. I was in it. We did a production of it when mm-hmm. I was in college that was set after World War One, which is why I had that moment. Oh, um, so, yeah, I enjoyed it Great. with that context. It made it so, a lot more. History, talented. tragedy, comedy. Mm-hmm. And then if you have a sort of doesn't fit into those categories play, but you don't have to. Well, or, or even just like the next favorite. Sure. Or just another. Like, it's our honor- podcast. We make up the yeah honorable, honorable mentions. mentions. Oh man, uh, well I really like Henry the Second Attack of the Clones. Roddy, do you want me to go or do you want to go? You can go next. I feel like you're a little more prepared for this than I am. So my favorite history um, is probably Henry the Fifth. Richard the Second is a close second, but Henry the Fifth was my first history. It's a famous one. Once more into the breach, dear friends, once more, I am a simple woman and a sucker. So um, also, that's the first play I ever saw performed at Shakespeare's Globe in London. Um, And so I'm very, very fond of it for that reason, because that was like 
a transcendent experience. Um, favorite tragedy. This has changed over the years. I think right now it's Hamlet. We will we will see when we do a Shakespeare pod for his death day next year. Original emo bro. We're gonna have to okay, just because you now just because you've said that we're gonna have to do a whole separate podcast litigating Listen, Hamlet. Never forget that there was a nineteen no two thousand adaptation with Ethan Hawke where where he's standing in blockbuster, blockbuster in the action section doing to be or not to be and he's not taking anything from incredible. the action incredible. section. Incredible, incredible, incredible. All right. Keep My going. favorite comedy is Much Ado About Nothing, which is there are many many other comedies that I adore, but like I would be lying to myself and to you if I didn't say that was it. And then I think my favorite kind of like late stage weirdo what is this play is Two Noble Kinsmen. Because it's a good time, but also like, what? So, those are honorable mentions to Love's Labor's Lost and As You Like It. Heck yeah. Roddy? Uh, I'm going to say, forget it to pretty much every category. Um, So, obviously, Othello for tragedies, if I must pick. But King Lear, you are a very close second. Um, Romantic comedies is obviously Much Ado About Nothing. Twelfth Night is also very funny. Uh, it's also very cool. Shout out to Malvolio. Fair warning. I am going to conflate a tragedy with a history because it is based on a historical figure. Because I do not want to pick any of the kings for a history. That's um, nor do I want to go with yeah. Coriolanus <gasps> actually would be my favorite history. That's legit. I am cheating because it is considered a tragedy. You are cheating, care. but uh, we accept it. Yes, because yes, it is based off of an actual um, Roman leader. Yeah, so it passes. No it cheat. passes the council. The council approves. Um, I guess in terms of like other plays that I don't, I wouldn't necessarily put them on a pedestal in terms of like favorites, but I do find them very fun and or fascinating. It would have to be like Troilus and Cressida. For one, mm-hmm. that one doesn't really get that much attention. No one does Troilus and Cressida. Uh, no one ever even touches Troilus and Cressida. And um, I don't know. Probably love labor's loss. Loves labor's loss. That's going to trip me up forever. Um, but yeah, I refuse to pick any of the actual histories. Because you know what? Falstaff deserved better from both Shakespeare and from Henry. So... Oh. That's all I have to say about that. Well, that was a uh, was a pleasure to to have you back on the pod, Roddy. It was fine. I hope Where I wasn't I too much of a jackass. <sighs> I really was just trying to find a way hey, to like insert the you... word jackass while we were talking about Midsummer Night's Dream, and I couldn't do it. But now you. But now you're scraping the bottom of the barrel, but Jeff. Now you know how my brain was working while you were talking so eloquently, both of you. Just waiting, <laughs> waiting for my spots to the, get a pun in, because the, where there's a will, there's a way. The bottom of the barrel, I say. Where there's a will, there's a way. Can a girl not get any pun recognition around here? Does it all go to you? Wait, was it? You're scraping the bottom of the barrel. Love it, love it. You're both terrible. I know. <laughs> I know. I miss you both. I was going to say, yeah, don't you miss us horribly? (laughs) I do. And I also hope that Keanu is doing well. Keanu is doing so well. And I keep finding more Keanus. And I keep going, it's another Keanu. Mm -hmm. And now that I, like, know some of his regular hangouts, I, like, wave. 
it's Keanu Appreciation Month here at the Ferndale Area District Library. Mm-hmm. And so as of April 1st, there's uh, quite a bit of Keanu Reeves in photographic form, but also his film oeuvre hanging around in various places. Mm-hmm. Jumps out at you. All right. So you have listened to another episode of A Little Too Quiet. You've gone and done it. You have done it. Uh, it's the Ferndale Library yeah. podcast brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. Well, of course, had Roddy back on the pod. Roddy, thank you. No problem. Thanks for having me. Mary Graham, again, putting on a clinic. Always a joy. Uh, and remember to rate, review, subscribe, and maybe even visit FerndaleFriends.org so you can support this podcast. Tell your friends about it, especially if they're fans of William Shakespeare. Uh, happy Death Day, Bill. Happy Death Day, Bill. Bill. Yeah. It was great to have you here. You could really write a play. Uh, we'll be back next week with more. Thanks for listening. Can you guys stay on the pod for like 10 more seconds? Yeah.